Today uh, we're going to uh, start uh, looking at the book of 1 Samuel. Um, we, having completed our series on Matthew, I thought it would be good for us to uh, go and examine something from the Old Testament for a while. Um, where the New Testament uh, looks back at Christ and what he's done, the Old Testament looks forward to Christ and what he will do. Uh, so keep that in mind as we go through First uh, Samuel. Uh, but before we come uh, to the word of the Lord, let's pray. Our Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the, the wisdom in it. We thank you for the truth that is in it. We thank you for the promises that are in it. And we thank you, Lord, that this word is not just a, a book of history, uh, but a living and active word. And we pray, Lord, that your word would be living and active in us today, that we might know you better, that we might know your son better, that we may grow in our faith and in our trust of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is First Samuel uh, chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. Now, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Uh, Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, saying, was well, so prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Uh, Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving but her voice was not heard. Uh, Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. 
Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfil his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord." And he worshipped the Lord there. Amen. The book of 1 Samuel uh, is a significant book in the Old Testament. There is a lot that happens and a lot that changes. At the beginning of the book, uh, Israel is is, is in what is called the period of the judges. But by the end... Uh, Israel has already had its first king, Saul, and David is poised to become king of Israel. And King David will be the greatest king of Israel until Christ. So it's a significant book. And, and the book that best describes the state of things at the very beginning of 1 Samuel is the book of Judges. Uh, what, what had happened is that Moses had brought... Uh, the Israelites out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land and then Joshua had led them for a time as they performed an initial conquering of the promised land but after that uh, the period of judges begins and it's a period really of decline they should have been following the Lord they should have remained faithful to him they should have seen the Lord as their king but they didn't they didn't always follow the Lord. They would even chase after other gods. They, they would trust in themselves. They would sin greatly. And so God would bring judgment upon them and they would face trials from their enemies. They would come under attack. They would be conquered. They'd be enslaved. They'd be all kinds of different things. But the Lord, during this time, never abandoned them. And periodically, the people would then call on the Lord for help, and the Lord would send help. He would raise up for them a judge, someone to lead them, 
someone to rescue them and direct them in the ways of the Lord. But time and time again, once the judge left them, the people would return to their wicked ways and turn away from the Lord. And so while there were many judges, things kept getting worse and worse. And the book of Judges concludes with, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Israel had no king. Well, they did have a king. It was the Lord God himself. But the Israelites didn't want him as their king. They, they wouldn't uh, obey him. They wouldn't accept his word. And so they each did what they, they thought was best. And so the whole country is in moral decline, having departed from the ways of the Lord. And some of the stories in the book of Judges are some of the worst stories that you might ever hear. It was that bad. So how would this be resolved? It is something that could not continue forever. And so as we come to the book of 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel is fruitless. It is meant to be this marvellous vine planted in the fertile soil of the promised land. But instead it's producing thorns and thistles. And the land that should have been flowing with milk and honey flows with blood and violence. The people of Israel were not faithful, they're not obedient. And there is sin and corruption throughout. And then 1 Samuel begins. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, a son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tofu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. <coughs> and he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Uh, Elkanah is known only to us as uh, the father of Samuel. That's his claim to fame. He's of the tribe of Ephraim. He's living in the mountains. He seems to be a reasonably wealthy fellow. Uh, but he is not anyone of any particular consequence. And the narrative moves quickly from him to his wives, one of whom is called Hannah and the other is Penina. And it seems to be that he married Hannah first, uh, but she has been barren. And just like others in the nation of Israel at the time, uh, Elkanah just did what he thought was right and got married again so that he could have sons to inherit his land and to do his work. And the result is this, this very broken family. There is bitterness in this family. But there is some faithfulness too. Verse 3 says, Year after year this man went uh, from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now this act obviously marks Elkanah as, as a man of God, at least to a point as he and his family make an annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to offer sacrifices to the Lord there. Uh, Shiloh, uh, during the time of the judges, was the resting place of the tabernacle, the, the travelling temple of the Lord. At this point in Israel's history, there's still no temple of stone at the time. There's, the tabernacle's not even in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem itself still hasn't even been properly conquered by the Israelites. It's still occupied by people of other nations. And so we're quite early in this history of Israel. But for now, the tent of the Lord is set up at Shiloh, and it's been there since the days of Joshua. 
Uh, the family's trip to Shiloh was a once-a-year event. It kind of reminds me of a family gathering for Christmas. Um, I wonder if you had all your family together for Christmas. One of the sad things for many families at Christmas time is that it's when sibling rivalries and family disputes just bubble up to the surface all over again. And so instead of being a time of joy and celebration, family disunity seems to take hold. And, and that is what it was like for Hannah, year after year. It should have been a special time, an occasion for worship, and a, an occasion for for peace with God, an occasion for, for wonder. But it was always an occasion for bitterness between the two wives. Uh, verse 4 says, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and not to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Hannah couldn't have any children. And she was helpless in this. She did what she did in her family life. She brought happiness to her husband, but her rival, Penina, the second wife, was constantly at her. And it would bring her grief and sadness. Sons were important in those days. It was the way in which inheritance was handed down. Sons would carry on the family name. Sons would work the fields, tend the sheep, do the hard yakka. And even given the unruly nature of the land in those days, the sons were also soldiers, guards and protectors of the family. But more than this, having children was actually a sign of the Lord's blessing. Note that the passage mentions twice that it was the Lord who closed Hannah's womb. Unfruitfulness of the woman was a, a sign of God's curse. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, the Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your ground. But then it says... However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, the fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Hannah's womb was closed by the Lord and it would have been seen by others as a sign of a curse upon her. It was not just about having children or not, this is about whether Hannah was ever going to be blessed by the Lord. And Hannah was helpless in all of this. She couldn't change her circumstances at all. And, and, and at this point, it doesn't matter whether her barrenness was due to her own sin or simply part of the curse upon the nation for its disobedience or some other reason. It, it didn't matter. The Lord himself had brought it about and there wasn't anything that she could do. And year after year, every time they came to Shiloh, where it should have been a time of worship and celebration, Hannah was ridiculed, provoked and humiliated until she could not eat. Verse 9 says, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. 
Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. This particular day, she has become so distressed that she has come to the tabernacle to pray, to lay out her heart to the Lord. She wants so much to have a child because she believes it will bring an end to her pain. We know it's not having the child per se because she says she's actually going to give the child over to the Lord. And so instead her real request is that the Lord would have mercy upon her and open her womb that she would no longer be counted as cursed by God. Merely having a child would change everything about her situation. It would change everything about the way in which she was perceived by others in respect to the Lord. She counts herself already as a faithful servant of the Lord and we can give her the benefit of the doubt that that is true. And so you can imagine these taunts from from Penina against her would be very grievous of heart. She probably said things like, the Lord doesn't love you. The Lord doesn't care for you. He's closed up your womb. He's never going to bless you. How would that make you feel? When she prays, it is the prayer of a faithful woman who is in deep distress. Now, the promise that she makes here shouldn't be viewed as some kind of uh, quid pro quo, as if when we pray to God, we've got to offer God something in order that he would answer our prayer. Now, you should know that's not the case. After all, there is nothing that the Lord actually needs from us. If he answers our prayer, it's always going to be from his love and by his grace. Our Heavenly Father is good and knows how to give good gifts to his children. He hears our cries and he is faithful. And Hannah would know that. So what is she actually saying? What is she committing to here? instead of some kind of quid pro quo, we should recognise Hannah's vow as a promise for a thank offering. If you grant my request, Lord, this is how thankful I will be. And she offers to the Lord the one thing that would be most precious to her. Imagine that, you've been barren your entire life and then you have a child and then the very thing that would be most precious to you in that moment, of course, is going to be that child. It's like um, Abel who offered up the first fruits of his flock. Hannah offers to the Lord the first fruits of her womb. She has no idea whether there will be any other children coming, she doesn't know. If the request is granted, it might be the only child she ever has. But she gives him up because it's her way of thanking the Lord with the greatest treasure she possesses.
Hannah's way of saying how much it would mean to her to know that the Lord is blessing her in her life, how much it means to her to, to, to not have a, a curse upon her, how much it means to her to, to end her shame. She, of course, doesn't lose the child forever. She will see him again. She will see him every year. But she foregoes all the benefits of, that a son would be to her. She vows to give her son to go into service for the Lord for all his life. A part of the promise here is that she would uh, ensure that there's a razor is never applied to his head. Uh, that, that's part of the vows of, of being a Nazarite, someone who is dedicated to the Lord. Uh, you might have heard of um, Samson. Uh, Samson was uh, a judge, a, a leader of Israel, and he was a Nazarite, and he would, he'd never had his hair cut. And while he uh, had his hair, and while no razor had ever touched his head, Samson's strength could not be overcome. And what we have here is, is Hannah... Uh, promising that Samuel would go into that same kind of dedication. Uh, he, would, he would not uh, drink wine, he would not uh, have his hair cut, he would dedicate himself to the Lord. Now while she's praying, Eli, the chief priest who is nearby, uh, sees her uh, praying away. She's praying silently and he misunderstands what's going on. Verse 12 says, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. It would have been a, a very uh, embarrassing moment for Eli. Uh, but what he does next is, is say, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. I wonder when I read this as to whether this is just part of the Lord's plan too because what he says is so encouraging to Hannah. He might not have said anything at all if she thought, if he thought he w- she was just praying away. He might not have said a word. But because he's made this mistake, he needs to say something instead. And what he says is, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went on her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Hannah has taken this as a sign that the Lord will indeed give her what she has asked. She walks away, no longer downcast, no longer distressed, believing that her prayer has been heard by the Lord and that she will receive from the Lord what she asked for. And that is exactly what happens. Verse 19 says, Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. 
Well, it's a wonderful thing to have happened. A woman in distress calls on the Lord for help and her prayer is answered. There really is nothing beyond the Lord. Uh, He is the creator after all and he is sovereign over all things and and sometimes you know he's just waiting for our prayer in times of our distress before he lends a hand because that way we truly know where our help has come from and the baby that comes for Hannah is most certainly from the Lord's hand and she names him Samuel because of that And there is a little period here now where we might wonder whether Hannah will complete what she promised. Verse 21 says, When the man Elkanah went up and all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. It's probably a few years before the boy was ready to be away from his mother. And right here, no doubt, over the course of those years, the temptation for Hannah would have been to hang on to Samuel. uh, To be unfaithful to her vow, to reason that, well, it was just something that happened anyway. But instead, she proves faithful. Verse 24 says, After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted to me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. This is uh, what happened with Hannah, the wife of a certain man named Elkanah. And the question we must ask ourselves is, why is this included in Scripture? Uh, We have been going through Matthew over the past few years and the Gospels are a great place to start in Scripture because it's so easier, so much easier to understand the point. It's easier because where Jesus isn't teaching quite plainly, we can easily see where we fit in the story. Uh, Jesus is the main man and and we are those who are around him. Uh, We can often see ourselves in the disciples, uh, in those that Jesus heals, We can see ourselves in those that Jesus counsels and and even in those that he rebukes. We can place ourselves quite comfortably in the story and we like to see ourselves in the story. It helps us to learn and to understand. We look at the Pharisees or the disciples and say to ourselves, that could be us. We could make the same mistakes. And that works because the point of the Gospels is to tell the impact of Jesus coming on the world and on us. That's the point. But when we come to the Old Testament narrative, that's not the point. In fact, the main point is often something entirely different. Sometimes there's teaching on how we live our lives or the nature of God and there's a little here. 
Hannah is in distress. She turns to the Lord and her prayer is answered. And the Lord is like that. And if you're in distress, then you can know that the Lord will hear your prayer. But that's not why this story is included in Scripture. It's not about you. It's not about me. At least not directly. Now this story is about the search for a saviour for God's people. The whole nation is in distress. They're departed from the Lord and wandering away. The nation is falling into moral decline. This is a story about a search for the right man, the one who would lead Israel out of that. And the one that is born here is Samuel. This history is included in Scripture to show us how God was at work in the nation of Israel to bring about the right circumstances, to bring about this situation where we've got Samuel handed over so his whole life will be dedicated to the Lord. He would end up with this perfect upbringing in, 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 the, in the tabernacle, constantly in the presence of the Lord. And Samuel will become that person who leads Israel back to the Lord. This is what the Lord is doing. Remember, it was the Lord who closed up Hannah's womb. It was said twice. And that means that the Lord has initiated this whole situation so that Hannah ends up out of desperation, vowing to give this child into the Lord's service. It is the Lord that brings this all about so that Samuel is born out of God's grace and given with thankfulness into the service of the Lord. In the birth of Samuel, it's clear to see God's hand at work behind the scenes and on centre stage as the child is born. Our other reading today was of uh, the birth of John the Baptist. It was very similar. We see John the Baptist born to Elizabeth, who is said to be barren and was far too old to be having children. But she became pregnant anyway. It's the same special something that is seen in the birth of Samuel. And so there is a saviour of a kind born through Hannah. We know that Samuel is not the ultimate saviour. He's not Jesus Christ. But he is a saviour of a kind. And he becomes a judge and a prophet over Israel for many, many years. And it will become clear to all Israel that God is at work through him, that God speaks through him. Israel was living in darkness and through Samuel the light of the Lord would shine for a time. When we come to the beginning of 1 Samuel, the faithful in Israel were on the lookout for a saviour. Someone who would lead them back to God. And for a while, Samuel will fill that role. And as we go through all of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that kind of theme repeated many times. We will see aspects even of Jesus Christ reflected in different people. We will see shadows of Christ in Samuel. We'll we'll see shadows of Christ in David. And we will see how over time there is developed this picture of a true saviour. One who would be prophet, priest and king. 
One who would come, who would be the ultimate saviour and save us all permanently, not just temporarily. In the days of the judges, the hopes of the people were were merely on the next saviour to come. They, They would always need another one because they were always falling away. They need someone who would bring them back to the Lord and into his favour again because they kept falling out of it. Time and time again they would find new judges and time and time again even those judges would fall short. And so ultimately what they really needed was going to be a saviour who would save them once and for all. So as we come through 1 Samuel, what we start to find is that we're looking for Jesus. We're looking for someone who will save and save perfectly, save permanently, save with assurity, bringing us into perfect peace with God, into a peace with God that would never end. Today, we, we face the same kinds of trouble and strife that Israel faced in those days. Uh, there is little doubt that most people in the world failed to accept the Lord as King. And so the world really is like the time of the judges in Israel where every man did as he saw fit because there was no King. That's how the world is. But we don't need saving from the world anymore. Because our saviour has already come. Salvation for us is not from the world and our circumstances, but from our sins and from the wrath of God. But with the salvation that comes in Christ, we have a freedom that Israel never experienced. Because our future rests so securely with Jesus Christ that there is nothing in this world that can ever take us away from us again. The saviour of God's people, the Messiah, has come and his name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? He is the only way to heavenly life and eternity. He is the only one who can save you and save you assuredly. In the end, Israel had many saviours over the course of its history. Some were judges like Samuel, some were prophets, some were kings, some even were foreigners who managed to release the Israelites from bondage. But they only saved the nation for from a time and, and, and normally just from their current circumstances. They never really brought them to peace with God. Only Jesus Christ brings us peace with God. But that he brings with absolute certainty. We're not looking for a saviour anymore because we have found him in Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Have you put your trust in him? Because in Jesus Christ there is peace with God. There is forgiveness for all of your sins. And there is certainty of life to come in the presence of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, and all that we have in him. 
We thank you that we are no longer waiting for a saviour, that we already have one. That we could be at peace with you forevermore because of him. Uh, Lord, we do confess that we uh, fail you on a daily basis. Our thoughts and our actions are, are not always what they should be. But even then, Lord, you are at work in us, changing us, helping us to to be the kind of people you desire us to be. We thank you for the work of your Spirit in our lives. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins we have in Christ. And we thank you for the certainty that we have knowing that our lives rest securely in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.